0: by Caroline and David Stafford, with David Haig as Burkitt.
1: Behold, I show you a mystery. No, you just stay calm, we
0: Mr. Not all
2: speak, here,
1: we can but have we this. we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised <coughs> incorruptible. Excuse Get me, Reverend. Let Listen me go. Down. Get off me. Hold Get up, Harry. off me. you got to stop the
3: funeral. He was murdered. Harry Pace was murdered by his missus.
4: I knows it.
5: May the 29th, 1928. Sir, many Englishmen...
6: What is it? Uh,
5: the Daily Express. Sir, many Englishmen rightfully believe that one of the superiorities of their law over that of foreigners is the treatment of an accused person as innocent until he is proved guilty. And is the writer an old colonel
6: or an old major?
5: Uh, colonel Harcourt Winterbottom.
6: I'm so glad. What is that?
5: Uh, it's about Annie Pace, the woman who poisoned her husband. Oh,
6: the Colford Poisoner. The Times did mention it.
5: The Express has it on pages one and three, with an editorial on page twelve. The Herald has two pages of photographs. It
6: is a corker, isn't it? <laughs> the deceased brother interrupting the funeral to point the finger at his sister-in-law. It's as good as Sexton Blake. What's the Colonel have to say on the matter?
5: It's mostly about the interrogation... <clears throat> Uh, Many Englishmen must have been rudely shocked by the cruel treatment of Mrs. Pace, whose interrogation by Scotland Yard officers lasted 13 hours, during which time her children were neither fed nor allowed any other comfort.
6: He is right, of course.
5: But English is always better than foreign.
6: But a 13-hour interrogation is not very British. Give him the third degree, Motsy. Did she do it?
5: She had every right to. Her husband treated her abominably.
6: If she'd set about him with a meat cleaver, she might plead self-defence, but it's a tricky one to pull off where poisoning's involved.
5: What possible alternative did she have?
6: To killing him.
5: She's a victim.
6: That's not how they taught it at Cambridge.
5: In a civilised country, this cruelty... There would be a remedy. The husband would go to prison and the wife granted an automatic divorce.
6: The Herald's not even paying lip service to impartiality. Many sympathisers are rallying to the cause of this distressed widow.
5: Oh. Mr. A. A. Purcell, Member of Parliament for the Forest of Dean...
6: Odious man, what about him?
5: ...has already started a public subscription for the purpose of raising the necessary money for the defence of Mrs. Pace. Heart on
6: his sleeve, eye on the ballot box
5: it is his hope that by such means the money will be found to provide for her the services of an eminent counsel at the trial they will telephone no after the Denniston case who else would they want they will telephone you will no. take the case it will make you no. the most celebrated barrister in the country and your vanity will be insufferable only
6: if i win they
5: will telephone
6: i'm not sure i'd accept anyway you will i'm not sure i'd want it It's marked 1,000 guineas. Would it be appropriate, perhaps, if I said I'd forego the fee? Not a good idea, sir, if you don't mind me saying. There's always a next time and a next time, isn't there? Here, or...? Gloucester Assizes. Prosecuting? Merriman. Oh, law. Seated? Mr Justice Horridge. Horridge? It's not that bad. Solicitor General, most eminent judge on the circuit, and me... I feel as if I'm number 11 bat for the Alverston boys sent in to face Larwood and Tilsley. It'll put you with the immortals, sir. It's a great honour. Or a poison chalice. Have you had a look? You've got the press on your sight. I've seen. What's that one? The World's Pictorial News. Turn over. Picture. <laughs> Very distinguished you look too. Good Lord. Annie Pace's The Pretty Rosy-Cheeked Widow. You're one of the finest counsels in England and the editorial uses the word travesty three times. So, if Mr Justice Horridge flies in the face of legal precedent and rules that a leader from the world's pictorial news is admissible evidence, we're in with a chance. Slowing down again. Problem? Not so far as I can see it. I was wondering whether we were near Colford. No, miles away. Colford's the other side of Gloucester, in the Forest of Dean. Never been there. Ancient woodland. Very ancient. They do things differently in the Forest of Dean. Only I read in the paper the train slows down when it passes Annie Pace's cottage at Colford, so people can get a look. Nowhere near. They're doing chariban tours. They're not. Advertising the Gloucester papers Brunswick Square to Colford and back with commentary from a knowledgeable guide. Five and six. Bring sandwiches. And the house? Rose cottage, but not a rose left in the garden. All picked for souvenirs. Morbid. Is it just prurience, though, do you think? Sir? This great wave of sympathy for Annie Pace, something I've never seen quite so vividly in any other case. The murderess as victim. She's touched a nerve. The soul of the nation has been stirred. Daunting, though. Beg your pardon, sir? Conducting a criminal trial in the glare of the public gaze. If I lose. You're not going to lose. That's why they chose you. The way you took the jury with you in the Deniston case never heard such eloquence. Well, There's no one at that bar a patch on you for touching hearts and minds. Yeah. It's a precious gift. If you don't mind me saying so, sir. My wife wondered whether we'd be finished by Friday. Next Friday? I'd like to be home by next Friday. Uh, something special? Linaire's birthday. Oh, my goodness. She must be what, four? Five. Oh, I'll have to sort it out a present. That's a very kind thought, Edgar, but really, you must.
7: Oh, they've got a very nice baking set, I saw at Woolworth's. A toy baking
6: set. With all the pans and a little oven. Unless she's got one already. I don't believe she has. No. <laughs> Probably a bit young for a post office set. <laughs> What's going on? Can't see, sir. Driver? They've been there all week, sir. Crowded crowd of women outside the prison. For any Pace? Of course. Extraordinary. There's hundreds of them. Flappers. My God, she's touched a nerve. Uh... I fear for the country. Do you? This next election, them, voting. I mean, I have nothing against women having the vote. I'm glad to hear So it. long as they're sensible. Ah. Oh, which me. is why it made sense the old way. But women under 30, look at it. The Liberal Party campaigned long and hard for truly universal suffrage. I know that, sir, and in principle I'm with you all the way. Democracy is a wonderful thing, but in practice... You see, first time they go to the polls we'll have Douglas Fairbanks in number 10. Couldn't do much worse than Baldwin. Don't they have parents?
0: Good morning, Mrs. Pace. My name's Bowker, Edgar Bowker, and this is Mr. Burkett, who will be defending you in court.
6: Pleased to meet you. How are they treating you here, Mrs. Pace? Do you have everything you need?
8: Well, they've all been very kind, but I miss the children. I worry about little Jean.
6: Of course.
8: There are babies here. Four of them. Sometimes I hear them crying at night. One of them's called Jean, too. I've been knitting some socks for her just to keep my mind off things. I managed five pairs so far.
6: Excellent. Now, Mrs Pace, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you some questions of a delicate nature about your husband and the way he treated you during your married life.
8: I've been through all that with the police and the coroners. Yes,
6: I've read the accounts, but it's important I hear it from you personally, Mrs Pace. Small, easily overlooked details can become very important in the courtroom. Yes. Now, you were married when you were 17.
8: That's right. After I lost my mother, I went into service down in London, but Harry wasn't having it. He said I had to come back and marry him or he wouldn't be held responsible. So I did.
6: And in general, would you say the marriage was a happy one? I think you know it was not. Mr. Burkett does need to hear it in your own words. missus Pace.
8: the beatings began nearly as soon as we set up home together as man and wife he'd get angry with me he was a very jealous man and before you ask he had no reason to be I'm sure he took his belt to me first time it happened I ran all the way home to my father's house it was the middle of the night and I didn't know what else to do he came after me of course He stood outside the house and shouted for me.
6: Forgive me for asking, Mrs Pace, but was your husband a drinking man?
8: No, not my Harry. Never cared for it. He loved sweets, though. He'd do anything for a quarter of sweets.
6: After he followed you to your father's house, you went back to him?
8: Not that night, no. He was shouting and shouting for me, so my brother opened the window and tried to reason with him. Harry told him to put my head out the window so he could shoot it off. He had a pistol. I thought he could change. He said he was sorry for what had happened. Soon after I went back to him, he started tying me to the bedpost when he went out to look after his sheep. The first time he did it, I thought he'd only be gone a few minutes. Then it started to get dark. He was gone eight hours.
6: You were left without food and water? I was, sir. And who looked after the children? This was right at the beginning, before they came along. Did your husband's manner change? Was he more attentive to you when you were expecting?
8: Well, the beatings got worse, so I suppose so. Five of my children were born dead or died very soon after. If I tell you their names, Mr. Burkett, will you write them down? If you wish me to. There was Cyril, Hillier, Kathleen. Ursula and little William. He beat me so badly when I was carrying my babies as a wonder any of them survived. And the living children didn't fare no better. Once he poured petrol all over their bedclothes and set them on fire.
6: Why did he do these things?
8: He was a very angry man. He'd thrash my Dorothy if she tried to get between us when he was in one of his moods. He'd take a strap to the boys. I never knew where the rages came from. I tried my best to please him. I'm sure you did. He hated me to care for anything. My brother Fred gave me a little dog once as a present. A Pomeranian. You know? Yes. No bigger than a teacup. He snatched it out of my hands and dashed it against the wall. Sometimes in the evening I'd see him walking home through the fields towards Rose Cottage and there'd be something in the way he was walking. With his head down and swishing at the grass with his stick. I'd know I was for it when he got home. I'm sorry, Mr. Burkett, Mr. Banker. I'm very tired now.
6: Of course, Mr. Burkett. Thank you, Mrs. Pierce. it doesn't bear thinking about. I'm not one to speak ill of the dead, but he does sound like a piece of work, doesn't he? You don't think Edgar... You don't think she sounded a little bit rehearsed? Like something you might read in the world's pictorial news. Well, she's given statements at the coroner's court, local police, Scotland Yard, magistrates, solicitors, hardly surprising. But I assume the newspaper people have been to see her in prison. Hundreds, I would have thought. Well, you think somebody might have been coaching her? It happens. Never stands well in the witness box. And nothing she says actually adds up to her defence. The cruelty, the beatings, the little dog will almost certainly be used against her. She's not sure of a motive or two, is she again? Did you dig up anything on Harry Pace's brother? Elton Pace, chap at the solicitors, has got all the documents. Elton Pace's small holding is adjacent to Rose Cottage, and there's been argy-bargy about it for ages. He's apparently very keen to get his hands on Harry's bit of land. Keen enough to kill for it? Dunno. Keen enough to stop a funeral. Possibly even keen enough to see his sister-in-law hanged. You've got lunch booked with Dupre. Um, the family doctor. Ah.
1: Yes, I had occasion to treat Harry Pay several times in the last few years. In fact, I... Mr Perkett, that man over there... Which man? Looks familiar. Oh, no,
6: Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton? Of course. I've seen his picture. Has he seen me? I don't think so. I'm afraid this trial has turned into a three-ring circus. There are, to my certain knowledge, some seven celebrated writers in town. Three of them are staying here at the King's Arms. Seven? Chesterton spoke to me yesterday evening in what's often described as his characteristically ebullient manner. Is he advancing? Retreating. Good. How's your chop? Excellent.
1: Where was I? Attending Harry Pace. Aye, of course. Um, well, I've attended the whole family on and off for several years. Mm hmm. Mrs Pace had ten confinements in fifteen years, poor thing. Not always with happy results, I'm afraid to say. Yes, and Mr Pace was not always a trusted helpmate. <sighs> Harry
6: Pace, well, where do you start? <laughs> he was a Forest of Dean, man. I was wondering if you could fill in some detail on the coroner's report. Tell me, for instance, about Mr Pace's illness
1: last summer. Oh, I need to consult my notes. Of course. Uh, Mrs Pace brought her husband into my surgery at Colford at the beginning of May last year. He was complaining of heartburn, flatulence and biliousness and told me on three occasions he'd vomited blood. So much for the chop. Sorry, Nothing. Go on. Well, my initial diagnosis was gastritis. In July, I was called to the house. He'd grown much worse and had developed a worrying loss of power in his hands and feet. It sounded like peripheral neuritis, but then Mrs. Pace told me that they'd been dipping sheep that week. And he'd spent many hours practically immersed in sheep dip. It became apparent that Mr. Pace needed to be admitted to hospital. And what was
6: the diagnosis from
1: the hospital? Well, they confirmed my suspicions. ...that his paralytic condition was due to arsenical poisoning.
6: And you assumed the source of the arsenic to be the sheep dip? Of course. But the autopsy report...
1: The autopsy report raised doubts about the source of the poisoning... ...but none that I feel couldn't be answered. And you'd be prepared to say that in the witness box? Of course.
6: One other thing. Did Annie Pace... Did she seem
1: to you to be a loyal and supportive wife? Imprudently so. Uh, There was an occasion just before Christmas... Harry had taken a turn for the worse. Four feet of snow had fallen. And Mrs Pace came out to me, walking across the fields. She arrived at eight o'clock in the evening. The journey had taken her six hours. There was, of course, nothing I could do. I had other patients. My wife offered to put her up for the night, but she insisted on returning to her husband. Six hours? <laughs> Surely nobody could believe that a woman capable of such devotion could deliberately poison her husband. Oh. What is it?
6: Don't turn round. What? Kipling.
5: He tied her up all day and left her without food or water.
6: Have you finished with the interrogatories?
5: Here. He was a monster. Yes. He was cruel to the children. He threatened his wife with a razor and with a hatchet.
6: This is only what Annie Pace has told us, of course.
5: She had every right to kill him.
6: So you think she's guilty?
5: What else could she do?
6: This isn't coming together as much of a defence, is it?
5: What else can one believe? Her husband's cruelty was intolerable, but since a life of beatings and oppression does not constitute grants for divorce, she had no alternative, though it was entirely against her nature, to become a murderess. So, what you have to do is lose the case. Lose? Of course. She must be found guilty. I'm not with you. She is found guilty, sentences passed, the public is outraged by the inhuman injustice, the case becomes a cause celebre. Like Drave. And leads inevitably to a reform of your defective divorce laws.
6: So? Well, first of all, I have to be very clear in my own mind. About what? About the difference between politics and law. A barrister is a taxi driver. The client gets in the back and there are only two places he can go, guilty or not guilty. Your job is to take him to one or the other by the best possible route and not to question whether it's a fitting or morally appropriate destination. When I was a member of Parliament, I felt like a fish out of water. You know this. But here is an opportunity to make change. By losing a case? Yes. You are playing devil's advocate.
5: Why do you say the that? The
6: only thing worse than politicians thinking they're policemen and judges is policemen and judges thinking they're politicians. Either way leads to immoderate behaviour. And besides, Annie Pace is found guilty. She becomes a co celebra The divorce laws are changed flawless hypothesis, except somewhere along the line there is a very strong chance she'll go to the gallows. They would not
5: hang her. They would. They would not have the stomach for such a thing. The Home Secretary would not... Johnson Hicks wouldn't have the stomach for a hanging. Slavery is abolished, but still a woman can be condemned to a lifetime of unimaginable cruelty with no recourse to law and no escape but death. You must lose the case. (laughs)
6: He'll call Elton Pace. Right, sir. Who will swear to heaven, as he did when he interrupted the funeral, that Annie Pace is a black-hearted, two-faced murderess, but his testimony will be so transparently flawed and motives so compromised that he will leave the witness box with every word blown to the winds like thistle-down and gossamer. So, no problem there. But what have we got? <sighs> wow. We've got a mob of flappers inside and outside the court, primed and ready to become an angry mob if anyone dares lay a finger on poor Annie Pace. Mm. We've got the newspapers writing reams of outrage about the villainy of Harry Pace. Every word of which Merriman will use as regrettable but nonetheless unquestionable proof of Annie Pace's guilt. Sympathy for Annie Pace, outrage at the way she was treated. All it does is convince everybody that nobody ever had a more powerful or more understandable motive for murder. Mm. Billy's sure she's guilty. If a man can't convince his own wife, what chance does he have of the jury? Mind you, Mrs. Burkett is. What? Well. Oh, well, yeah, she is remarkably Swedish. <laughs> Do you have the uh, coroner's report? Well, there's the snow story. Uh, The trudging through the snow, the one the doctor told you. Mm -hmm. How does that work as a defence? A six-hour trudge through the snow proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Annie Pace is a saint devoted patient, never contemplate harm coming to her man. Merriman's putting up the boy, though. The son, what's his name? Leslie Pierce. Yes, well, a nine-year-old boy who will tear out the jury's heart with tales of his father's cruelty to him and his brothers and sisters. Exactly, sir. And And never forget that that same saintly woman who trudged through the snow to help her husband will also be the perfect mother, harbouring an even more pressing protective instinct towards her children, prepared to kill in their defence against a bully. Have you ever seen a mother hen protect her chicks against the cockerel? No, sir. No, neither have I. I bet Merriman has, though. I i had a professor once who over sherry said that despite all the jurisprudence malarkey and the incumbent probatio quidicet, a criminal trial is no more than a game of who can spin the best yarn. Merriman can give us a Greek tragedy. The tale of poor Annie Pace, who falls victim to the dark lord of the forest, an elemental so powerful she is forced by bitter necessity to murder him. Elios Kaiphobos The pity and the terror. And the only possible ending to such a story is propitiation. The debt of blood paid in blood, the innocent sacrificed. And you really believe all that? No, of course I do. <laughs> but it had you spellbound, didn't it? And that's the point. Merriman's got a Greek tragedy. What have we got? Sheep dip? <sighs>
0: Sheep dip. Silence! Beatrice Annie Pace, you are
7: charged with the willful murder of Harry Pace on January the 10th in the present year, and you stand charged with the offence on the coroner's inquisition. How say you? Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. Speak up.
8: Not guilty, sir.
4: Keep your chin up, girl. Silence! Silence.
7: At Mr
6: Pace... I understand that it was your approach to the local constabulary that halted your brother's burial and opened the inquest into his death. I just wanted to do right by my brother. As we all do, I assure you. Now, am I right in inferring from your earlier evidence that you were on friendly terms with the deceased? Yes, sir. And with his wife. For the most part. And yet isn't it true that four years ago, Mrs Pace forbade you to enter their house? Uh, she had no right to do that, though, did she? She had no right that to... That house was my grandad's.
3: It's family house. And the land? That's Pace land. I got as much right
6: to be there as she has. More right. How would you um, describe Mrs Pace's marriage to her husband? She told me she wanted to get rid of the mingy old bastard. And did you mention to anyone else that she'd made this threat? No. Did you mention it to your brother? Did you tell him what she had called him? (laughs) Certainly not. It'd have gone down my neck, he would that. If Mrs Pace was so keen to be rid of her husband, how do you account for her efforts to get him attended by doctors? No fear. You mean to convey to my lord and the jury that you do not believe she did so? No, I don't. And what if Dr Dupre comes into that box and swears it? Would you believe it then?
1: No, I should
6: not. I got my own opinion about him. Why do you think that Mrs Pace entertained these ideas of killing her husband? She said he was never out for pleasure. He was, he was always scrapping with his sheep. Scrapping? Y- yeah. Spending time with his sheep. You mentioned that the house and the land it stands on belong to your grandfather. Uh, that's got nothing to do with it. You described it as Pace Land. It
3: is Pace Land. Annie come up from some oh, she, She's not
6: even Colford. Now, young man, I don't want you to be frightened. Just speak up clearly so everyone can hear you in court. Yes, sir. Hmm? Yes, sir. That's very good. Now, do you understand what the truth is and what it is to tell lies?
2: Yes, sir.
1: Do you know who God is?
2: He is our Father who art in heaven.
6: Now, Leslie, can you tell us about the last time your father dipped some of his sheep? Were you there?
2: I was. And Teddy was too. It was the end of the summer before he went into the hospital. Daddy dipped them in a tub.
6: Tell me, how did he mix up the sheep dip?
2: Uh, He got the powder out of the kitchen to put into the water. The powder was in a packet.
6: And did he use it all?
2: No. Not all of it. Daddy took what was left and screwed it up into a piece of newspaper and put it in his box downstairs. And Daddy put the dip in a bucket and mixed it up and he poured it in the dolly tub. And then he put the sheep into the tub and he pushed them down into the water with his hands.
6: So your father got a lot of the liquid on himself during the course of this operation?
2: Yes. He was fairly well wetted by the time he'd finished the lambs. Thank you.
6: Leslie, you have been very helpful.
2: A long time ago, Daddy said he was going to shoot a saw with his gun. I'm only nine. I couldn't have stopped him. I'm only nine.
6: You're a very brave boy. Thank you, Leslie. You can stand down.
1: Silence. We'll adjourn for lunch. I think. All rise.
6: Right. We could have done without the sh shoot us all with his gun out first. Yes. The mother hen will protect her chickens. But the sheep dip seems to be doing us very well. Seems so, sir. Wilcox is here. Wilcox? The home office forensic thing, me. Poison's expert. William Wilcox. I thought he wasn't available. Or come down from Scotland. Special. We're putting in a local doctor. They've got Wilcox.
1: bit worrying. I agree with the findings of the coroner's court that the deceased died of arsenical poisoning. The minimum effective dose is two grains. The intestines contain four grains, and the liver also had a considerable presence of arsenic. Three grains. And this, in your learned opinion, would be entirely consistent with a prolonged contact with sheep dip? In most cases it would, yes. It would not, however, be consistent with poisoning by the ingestion of the type sold as Battles Sheep Dip, which was the preparation used by Mr. Pace. But, but, um surely, arsenic is present in that preparation? Yes, certainly. But so is sulphur. Sulphur makes up 65% of Battles Sheep Dip. No sulphur was present in the deceased's body. But the arsenic found in the deceased body, it was consistent with a slow build-up of poison. A slow build-up could not have been the cause of death. At least one dose of pure arsenic with no sulphur content must have been administered within 48 hours prior to death.
6: Anything? Dr Dupre says there's a very strong possibility that the only reason no sulphur is recorded as being in the body is because they never thought to test for it when they were doing the autopsy. So if we were to get an exhumation order... Anything we could... else? Well, but there's no actual proof she administered the poison. The poison, pure arsenic, not sheet dip, was administered in the last 48 hours of his life. Do you have another suspect? We have no case. So we change the plea to guilty. With the weight of mitigating circumstances, she'll get off with... I don't know, but Horridge won't hang her. She won't hang. At Leicester Assizes, during the war, there was a factory girl, an unmarried mother. She'd suffocated her baby just a few minutes after it was born by tying a camisole around its mouth. I was prosecuted. And the doctor who'd attended her said it was perfectly possible that the pain she'd suffered had affected the girl's mind. She wouldn't have known what she was doing, either clumsy or possibly some sort of sleepwalking. Nevertheless, the jury found her guilty, and the judge, Pickford, you remember Pickford? He put on the black cap. They had to carry the poor woman out of the dock... Screaming, not protesting her innocence. I'm very sorry. That's what she said, looking at me. As if somehow her very existence caused me great offence. As if it was in her power to claim my forgiveness. As if it was in my power to grant that forgiveness. I've seen him getting sentenced, and I've seen him getting hanged, and the sentence is always worse. The shock. In the war, sometimes, if they caught a deserter, they do without a trial. Just leave him alone for a bit with a loaded pistol. No. The mother's up next Elizabeth Porter. Harry Pace's mother. If you remember, she remarried after her first husband died. Yes. There was an envelope. An envelope with the documents from Somerset House, wasn't there? Oh, right. Well, uh... Here it is. Listen, Edgar, Annie Pace is not the only person who could have administered that poison in the last 48 hours of Harry's life. You think his brother... We stand fast in the faith, Edgar. She won't hang. She mustn't hang. And when was the last time you saw your son, Mrs. Porter? I saw him before Christmas. And how was he? He was in a terrible bad way. He was doubled up by the pains in his belly. It was heartrending to see him. Who was there in the house to help Mrs. Pace with the nursing? There was Doris. Well, Doris was 11 years old. Did Mrs Pace nurse your son devotedly? I couldn't say. Is it a fact that you never rendered one moment's assistance in nursing your son? She never asked. But you knew that she had just had a baby and that baby was sick. That's enough for one woman to cope with, isn't it? I just want justice for my son. Was your son rather gloomy at times? I never knew it. Did he believe that medicine would do him no good?
9: When he was ill, he said medicine made him feel worse.
6: Would you say he was a man of strange behaviour at times? He was a hard-working man. Is that strange behaviour? He didn't deserve what he got. I regret that I have to put this question to you, but you had another son. Yes, there's Harry and Elton. An illegitimate son. I might have. Oh, please. Now, spare me, having to go through all the details. I have his birth certificate here. That son, Sidney, Reginald Pritchard Pace, was born on February the 11th, 1908. Is that correct?
10: I thought I was here about my Harry's murder.
6: I must ask you, this other son, is he living? I don't know.
2: I came here. So
6: you did not know? That he committed suicide by shooting himself whilst of unsound mind.
11: I don't know anything about the matter whatsoever. So
6: you never knew there was an inquest upon his dead body on March the 22nd, 1927, a little more than a year ago? No. Do you really swear to that? I do. So
1: you did not know he committed suicide? Hey, Mr. Burkett, I think we can accept that the witness says she had no knowledge of her son's suicide. Thank you, Millard. I have no further questions.
6: Now, Mrs. Pace, we have heard from the deceased's mother and his brother something of your husband's character. Could I ask you, in your own words, what kind of man he was?
8: I don't know. He was my husband.
6: His mother said he was a hard-working man. Would you agree with that?
8: Yes. He loved his sheep. It upset him terribly if anything happened to any of them. Once, when one of the ewes wandered onto the railway lines and got killed, he got so... angry, he came home and killed my little dog.
6: So we can conclude from that that he didn't love all animals.
8: No. He could be cruel. Childish. Once he took it into his head to see how chickens would walk on one leg so he went outside to the yard and broke one leg of each of a number of our birds to find out how they would get along. I had to wring their necks to put them out of their pain. If one of my children had tried a trick like that, I would have slapped him and sent him to bed. Sometimes he would bite the sheepdog's ears if he didn't obey him first time, and then he'd bark at them.
6: Your husband would bark at his dog?
8: It was one of his ways. Another time, he made me buy him a mouth organ in Colford.
6: Was he a musical man?
8: No, not at all.
6: Mrs Pace, I know this is painful to you, but can I ask you to relate the events of Christmas Day some two weeks before your husband's death?
8: Harry had been feeling sorry for himself all day. Christmas had that effect on him. I made him a glass of corn flour and milk to ease his stomach, but he threw it on the fire. I said maybe he'd be better off upstairs in bed, and he caught hold of the fire tongs and would have taken a swing at me, but my Dorothy got in between us. So he threw the tongs down and broke the fender. Then he went and got his razor and said he was going to cut all our throats. I sent Doris out to fetch a neighbor to help me calm him down. He
6: was very agitated.
8: He always got down in the mouth, Christmas time.
6: So your husband's spirits were very low. Did you ever suspect that he might take his own life? Mr. Birkett, do I have to remind you not to lead the witness? Point taken, my lad. No further questions. Still in the game. We have to build a completely new defence on practically nothing. They'll buy the suicide, sir. They want to buy it. And in the end, sir, it's what you said. Who can spin the best yarn, you or Merriman? And Merriman is looking very tired. Even tired, he's formidable. Did you read his summing up for the Waterson case? Extraordinary eloquence. Stand the doctor down. No more sheep dip. But see if you can get hold of a nerve specialist. There must be some sort of local asylum.
0: note for Mr. Berger. Thanks.
6: What's that?
7: Note from Merriman. He says he's spoken to Mr Justice Horridge and if Mr Burkett wishes to pursue a no-case-to-answer
6: submission, Mr Justice Horridge has assented to direct the jury to bring in a not-guilty verdict. Of course there's a case to answer. Merriman's established a very solid case. Why would he throw in the towel? Because he knows he can't win. Of course he can win. Besides, this is Merriman, the Solicitor-General. I've seen the defence bring... He's been nobbled. What? He's been nobbled. Well, who'd want to At the election next year, young women under 30 vote for the first time. There are a thousand flappers outside this courtroom. Baldwin's in a bad enough state as it is. If he goes polling for the flapper vote as the man who sent poor Annie Pace to the gallows, he's had it. Much better. Sweep the whole thing under the carpet. Quiet word with his Solicitor General Merriman, Bob's your uncle. (sighs) Nobbled. By the Prime Minister? Exactly. Pity. What? I could see a summing up brewing. There was a summing up brewing, yes. Never hear it now? No. Could have made legal history. Best untold tale a courtroom never heard. Huh. Nevertheless, Annie Pace goes free. It's a fudge, though, isn't it? Not right. She wanted her name to be properly cleared. She wanted justice, and all she gets is politics. Nobbled.
5: A Talk to Wives by Mrs. Pace.
6: This is the express? Yes. I hope they paid her a very large fortune.
5: Why I could not run away. You've got to fight for what you've got to keep it and to make it better. I keep asking myself one question as I write this story, and I ask it because writing the story brings it into my mind. Why did I stay with Harry? I answer myself, because I loved him. So, her advice to women in her position, women who are beaten like dogs, humiliated, is stick with it. In the name of love? Yes. If Anna Pace had been found guilty, the divorce... Divorce
6: law reform may have been raised a couple of notches on the political agenda.
5: How can you ever say this is law and this is politics?
6: There is only politics. Criminal justice is is a very blunt instrument, Billy. It's designed exclusively to establish guilt or innocence. It's like a
5: doctor managing an epidemic bacteria by bacteria without having the curiosity to raise his eyes from the microscope and see the infected well.
6: You think I should go back into politics, then? Of course. Trouble is, three years ago, the electorate disagreed with you quite vehemently.
5: The Express says that you are the saviour of Annie Pace. It
6: was a no-case-to-answer, a walkover.
5: Your old seat in Nottingham, how many young women work there in the lace factories? 2,000? 10,000? Most of them are between the ages of 21 and 30. All of them would have followed Annie's trial and would consider it a privilege to put an X next to the name of Norman Birkett.
6: Mm. You're right, of course. I'll write a couple of letters in the morning.
5: Linnea was very pleased with the post office said.
6: No oh, good. Edgar wasn't sure if she was old enough.
5: She drafts telegrams to the king and has stamped postage due on her white frock.
6: Nice to know some good came of our little trip to Gloucester, then.
0: In Norman Birkett and the Case of the Colford Poisoner by Caroline and David Stafford. Norman Burkitt was played by David Haig, and Edgar Bowker by Tristan Gravel. Billy was Alison Pettit, Annie Pace, Claire Corbett, Elton Pace, Michael Shelford, Dr Dupre and William Wilcox, Sam Dale, Mrs Elizabeth Porter, Joanna Monroe, and Judge Horridge was Bruce Alexander. The court clerk was Nigel Hastings, and the driver was John Biggins. The play was directed by Mark Beebe.
2: The boy
12: I love is up in the gallery. The boy I love is looking now at me.
0: Burkitt and the Blind Soldier by Caroline and David Stafford, with Neil Dudgeon as Norman Burkitt and Carl Prekop as Arthur.
10: Give me half a pint, Grace. Oh,
12: you are all right, Arthur? Oh, you look
10: pale.
4: Jimmy
12: was in earlier. Brought Harry the new bits for his back wheel. Oh, you sure you're all right?
7: Yeah.
5: Yeah.
7: Is that enough? Oh, that's lovely. The change, love. What can I get you? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> oh, his cut is bleeding through. Oh my God!
5: Help! Somebody, his cat is
7: oh, oh, through.
4: Oh, oh, p- oh, steady, everyone. Somebody, go to the cops. Let me die.
12: Oh, no. <laughs> Let me die. Somebody help!
4: <laughs> I've done the old woman in. <laughs>
3: How much longer?
9: We can go as soon as Lady Pearson has given out the rosettes.
3: There'll be a speech.
9: No, no. She'll just hand them out, shake their hands and murmur something encouraging.
3: You mark my words. There'll be a speech. It's for a good
6: cause. But I spend all day in court listening to speeches. <clears throat> I have a message for you today, my friend. What did I say? And that Shh. message is from the blind soldiers and sailors. They wish through me to convey their appreciation to all of you who have so splendidly helped in these last five years to give them that training which alone could bring back to them their independence.
9: Actually, do you think we could step outside
3: for a moment? I'm feeling a little... Oh, yeah. like you do look a strange colour. Yes, uh, come on. To come make on. secure yeah, excuse me. the of excuse all those
6: me. Who in our country's darkest hours gave their own life.
3: You've tired yourself out. You shouldn't have come.
9: Don't fuss, Norman. Oh, don't
3: sit there. The grass is soaking. You'll catch a chill.
9: I said don't fuss. Oh,
3: there's a first aid tent over there. I'm going to go and see if there's a nurse. is, is
9: that Mr. Burkitt?
3: I'm sorry, do do I... Um... Of course it is. I've heard you in court. Ah, <laughs> well, if you'll excuse me, I'm afraid my wife is a little under the weather.
6: Let me give you a hand. Um, shall I call for a stretcher? Will okay. both of
9: you calm down? I am not under the weather. I am going to have a baby. Now, if you don't mind, I am going over to the tea stand to purchase a cup of strong British tea.
3: Of course, of course. Good idea. Just what you need. I'll just walk you over. On
9: out. my own.
3: Billy, I... Swedish. Ah. This your first? What? Your first baby. Yes, yes. Don't worry, she seems as strong as an oak. (laughs) You, on the other hand, sound decidedly seedy. Oh, well, I've not been sleeping very well, I must admit. Look here, I'm terribly sorry, but you have the advantage of me. My apologies. Captain Ian Fraser, King Shropshire Light Infantry. Very pleased to meet you, Captain. Uh, There was something I hoped to speak to you about, Mr Burkett. Normally I wouldn't impose on a chap at an event like this, but... um, one of the men. One of our St Dunstan's men. He's got himself into a terrible fix. What sort of fix? A filthy mess. Gone and murdered his wife. Oh, um, I see. Perhaps you could contact my clerk, Edgar Bowker. I'm sure he could sort something out, although I am awfully pushed at the moment. It's just, he's really not a bad soul. As I say, my, my clerk is the best person. Yes, to... of course. Uh... The thing is, in my experience, it's always best to go direct to the CO wherever possible, rather than wasting time with the adjutant. Yes. Um. Why don't you uh, jot down the details for me and I'll pass them on? I can't do that, Mr. Burkett. It would be awfully helpful. Battle of the Somme. Hmm? Shell blast left me blind as a bat, I'm afraid, so you must do the scribbling. Got a pencil ready? <laughs> At St. Dunstan's. Never heard of them. Look after soldiers blinded in the war. Yes, I, uh, I don't to be really able to put my hand on the... Um, the oh, no, oh, here they are. Yeah, I met a chap there, Captain Fraser. wants us to act for one of his lads. Which lads are these? From St Dunstan's. Who? One of the blind soldiers looked after by St Dunstan's charity. Edgar, is something wrong?
7: No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. One of the blind soldiers?
3: Yes. And Captain Fraser wants me to defend him. Although, frankly, I'm a little surprised that the matter's been allowed to get this far. What's the uh, charge? Murder. Murdered his wife and then attempted to kill himself. A blind man. Blinded in the service of his country. Apparently the wife was uh, a flighty sort.
7: Surely uh, manslaughter would have been more um, uh, fitting.
3: I agreed to take the case.
7: Yes, I'm very glad you did, sir. A man like that deserves the very best. Mm.
3: Thank you, Edgar. What are you doing? Oh,
6: I had a, a pencil. Somewhere. Um.
3: I think Edgar needs a holiday.
9: We all need a holiday.
3: He was looking very drawn.
9: I expect he's worried about his idol.
3: Really, Billy. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Edgar sees me as a uh...
9: Mary Lloyd.
3: Ah, yeah, Mary Lloyd, the, uh, the musical singer.
9: She collapsed on stage at the Edmonton Empire. Did she now? She lies in a hospital bed, her life hanging by a thread.
3: Daily Express.
9: Edgar and his sister were devoted to her. Edgar? You didn't know.
3: Edgar and I have never discussed it. <laughs> Mary Lloyd had that run in with, um... What was her name? Or, um, or- Ormiston. Mrs Ormiston Chant of the Purity Party. And... She was objecting to Miss Lloyd's song, "I Sits Among the Cabbages and Peas. So, so she, Miss Lloyd, obliged by changing the words to "I Sits Among the
1: Cabbages...
9: And Leeks. <laughs> I know. It was cited in a Swedish newspaper as an example of infantilism in the British sense of humour.
3: I had no idea that Edgar was such a man of the people.
9: It says in the paper that there is a vigil taking place outside her home in Golders Green. I expect Edgar will be there.
3: You'd better not be. We have an appointment in Wandsworth.
13: Just not when you finish, sir. There'll be no
10: trouble to you. Thank you. Who's there?
3: Mr. Me? It's Norman Burkett, your barrister, and I'm Edgar Bowker, his clerk.
7: We're here to help you.
3: There's no help in me. Now, we'll have none of that, Mr Meader. I'm sure we can sort this dreadful mess out. I killed her and that's the end of it. I'm just a common wife killer, same as Dr Crippen. No, you are not. Dr Crippen burnt his wife's bones in the oven, dissolved her internal organs in an acid bath, buried what was left of her in the basement, and popped her decapitated head in a handbag which he threw overboard on a day trip to Dieppe. You're making fun of me. No, no, Mr. Burkett was just trying to say that we'll we'll have you out of here in no time. There is a world of difference, Mr. Meader, between what seems to have been a domestic argument that got out of hand and a meticulously planned and executed murder. I killed. I deserve to hang. That's for the judge to decide, Arthur. Now, why don't you take a moment to compose yourself and
10: tell us about your wife. She was... Just 18, when we got married. Her name was Mabel Frances Merry, and so she was, Mary. She wasn't a bad girl. Not then, she wasn't. We got married, and then I had to go back to the front. But you don't want to hear about all that, though, do you? Oh, on the contrary, Arthur. It could help us a great deal when we come before the judge. I joined up, see. With the Devonshire, fine regiment. As soon as war was declared, I got a bit carried away, you know. They had this thing, pals' battalions. You and your friends could all join up together. About thirty of us joined up. It was an adventure, and the women. There was this song. Do you remember it? I didn't like you much before you joined the army, John, but I do like your cocky. Now you've, now got, you've got your khaki on. Yes. Mm. <laughs> you could smell it first and then you could see it like a green cloud coming towards the trenches you soon learned if you ran from it it was the worst for you it was those that stood up on the fire step they were usually okay they told you beg your pardon for the language sir they told you to piddle on a cloth and wrap it around your mouth and nose was it
7: the gas that took your sight
10: I was asleep In the trench. The days were quieter than the nights. He just stole up on me.
3: In all my dreams before my helpless sight he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. You were there? It's a a poem. I, I was turned down. Twice. Tuberculosis. Lucky man. It didn't feel
10: like that at the time. I was discharged that November. You came back to your wife? To uh, Mabel? she just had a baby. Our little girl. Rini. She was a lovely baby, no trouble. But I couldn't see her face. It was blurry. I knew the smell of her and the feel of her, but I couldn't make out her face. With Mabel, I knew what she looked like. I carried that in my head. But little Rini... How can something you can't see be so beautiful? And what did you do for money? St Dunstan's did their best. You know, they taught me map making. Fiddly business it was, and the fibres didn't agree with me. Then they taught me typewriting. How did that go? I'd get headaches. The noise of the typewriter. Then they gave us £10 to help set up in business so me and Mabel opened a little sweet shop in Finsbury Park. And was that a success? It was fine, for a while. Mabel liked the company. She was very popular with the customers. And little Reenie sat on the counter chatting away. <laughs> we were, we were very happy. But that changed. I don't know. Sometimes I take a bit of drink. You see, I suppose I'd get to blaming Mabel for things that maybe weren't all her fault. So you quarrelled with your wife? She started going around. With other men? I can't say for certain. I stayed at home with little Reenie. I couldn't sleep when she wasn't there. I was so worried. So I'd take some more drink. Did you uh, question her? No. I was afraid of what she'd say. Anyway, then she got ill. I don't know what it was. She wouldn't tell me. She she had to go to the hospital. And I couldn't manage the shop all on my own, so I had to let it go. I'm sorry. We got a new place, a flat in Ballam. Moved in last year, and I thought it'd be a new start for us. Only Mabel didn't want to know. She wouldn't live there with me and Rene. She didn't want to live with her husband and her daughter, not in a flat in Ballam. So she got this other place with a friend of hers. So you weren't living as man and wife? That doesn't mean we weren't married, though, does it? Didn't matter where she was laying her head. She was still my wife and she still must have thought that I was her husband. Otherwise, why would she still be coming around? You saw her frequently? Once a week. Sometimes more. Mostly she just wanted money. She, she'd, she'd come round to get some money off me. And did you give her any? What I could spare. And then other times she'd promised to come round and I'd get Reenie all dressed up and ready and we'd wait.
3: You were bringing up the little girl. All on your own. Did you ever visit your wife?
10: I didn't know where she was living. She wouldn't tell me where she was living. Afraid I'd turn up and, and shame her, I expect. <laughs> I've done a terrible thing. <laughs> What's going to happen to Remy? <laughs> Perhaps
3: we should leave this for now, and let you rest. No, I can't do that. Too many thoughts, you see.
10: Is is there anything you need? I don't know where they took Rini. I'm not saying I wouldn't ask to see her. Not in here. But just so as I know, she's all right.
3: I'll see to it straight away, Mr Meader.
12: But I haven't got a penny So we'll live on love and kisses and be just as happy as the buddies on a tree.
9: She is dead. Hmm? Who? Mary Lloyd died last night.
3: I thought she died on Wednesday.
9: Her life was hanging by a thread on Wednesday. Now she is dead. It is the passing of an era. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It says so in Criterion magazine. Mm. It bemoans the passing of the music hall and the advent of the cinema. He says that whereas in the old music hall of Mary Lloyd, the working man joined in the chorus, thereby becoming an active part of the performance, the cinema merely lulls the mind into listless apathy.
3: There's a lot to be said for listless apathy.
9: In the Express, there is a warning for Edgar. What? A warning as to the effect that Miss Lloyd could have on men, and which perhaps death has done nothing to diminish... Three years ago, it says, at the self-same theatre in Edmonton where Miss Lloyd collapsed, a gentleman in the audience, as she walked on stage, died of excitement.
3: People don't die of excitement. They do. Not in real life. An underlying condition could be exacerbated, perhaps.
9: It will be on Monday. What? The funeral. Aren't you in court, then?
3: Tuesday. Tuesday.
9: Edgar will want to go to the funeral.
3: And it would be churlish of me not to give him a half-holiday to mourn the passing of one who has done so much to ensure we die of excitement rather than boredom. Billy.
9: What's the matter?
3: Do you think any the less of me for not going to the front?
9: Oh, what a ridiculous question.
3: You see, Arthur, Meader and Edgar... Edgar had a terrible war. Gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St Crispin's Day.
9: You hold your manhood cheap?
3: Oh, don't tease. This baby we're having, my son... Or daughter. Or daughter. I know it's a silly thing, but... What did you do in the war, Daddy?
9: At least you will be here to answer the question. Hmm. And you can tell them that you performed invaluable work with the refugees.
3: I pushed paper around. It's hardly commensurate.
9: You received a letter of thanks from the King of the Belgians. Ah,
3: yes, of course. I was forgetting. In parts of Belgium, I expect they call me Lionheart. Ah, goodbye, Mr. Burkett. I'm so sorry I had to call you away. Not at all, Edgar, not at all. How is he? He's no worse than you'd expect. The warder said he'd bring him through in a minute, uh, just cleaning him up a bit. They found him around two o'clock. They say they've no idea how he managed to get all of the twine. I shall have to take the matter up with the governor. It shows a marked dereliction of duty towards those in his care. There were contributory factors. What? arthur had been drinking. In here? The warder gave him a bottle of gin. Uh. Arthur begged him, you see, he said... It was the only thing that helped him with his headaches. He said the noise in the prison kept taking him back to the trenches and he started seeing things. Bad dreams? DTs. Or shell shock? Drink can do terrible things. Well, obviously, if we can establish insanity. He uh... doesn't seem balmy, though. Not enough to matter, anyway. In my experience, a man needs great swooping flocks of bats at his belfry for a judge to take much notice. Ah, uh, here he is.
1: Come on
3: My dear man, how are you? You won't get much sense out of him. Just shout when you're finished. Thank you.
7: Arthur. <laughs> Arthur. No. It's Edgar. Uh, Mr. Burkett here, you, your barrister.
3: Clear off. Uh, now, there's no need for that, Arthur. Uh... <laughs> I'm over. Now, oh. come on, Arthur. off! Leave me alone. I can quite understand that you're upset, Arthur, but we are here to help
10: you. Have you got anything to drink? I beg your pardon? Something to drink. Hip flask or something. No, 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 we have no. Come on. Pull yourself together. Pull yourself together. together, You are talking to a gentleman. Edgar. (laughs) Sit up. Edgar. Up. Sorry,
3: sir. That's better. Now, Arthur, the warder told Edgar that you get pains in your head. I'll get pains in my head when I want to drink. These pains are they accompanied by any um, visual intrusions? What? Do you see things that aren't there?
10: What? Ghoulies and ghosties and dead soldiers walking about, screaming in my sleep like Lance Corporal Jewers did. Not likely. No, I was just you. wondering. Ah, oh, when... aren't you? You're saying I'm soft in the head. Oh, right. I could be soft in the air. Arthur. I could give it a go.
3: Clearly now is not the time. (laughs) Edgar, we'll see you in court on Monday morning. Please promise me you won't try to harm yourself again. I can't promise any such thing. You don't know
10: what it's like.
4: In here!
3: You're right. It does play differently. A blind war hero is one thing. But a drunk blind war hero is another thing entirely. Drunken, jealous rage is a drunken, jealous rage. Drink does not play well. For some reason I've never been able to fathom, a disproportionate number of the twelve men, good and true, invariably seem so bright with the pious glow of temperance that the fear as one enters a courtroom that one may have taken a wrong turning and stumbled upon a band of hope meeting is often inescapable.
7: I signed the pledge on September the 9th, 1917, sir, and haven't taken strong drink from that day to this. Good for you. Terrible business. Look mm. at the Devons. I saw them, lads, coming back from Passchendaele. They were just up from us. Royal Welsh. All right. Mm. bucks. Yeah, please, feel free to use your notebook, Sergeant Waller. Yes, of course. Uh, It was in point of fact my day off, so I was in plain clothes. I was in the Balham Hotel. This is a public house? Yes. What time was this? Um, uh, ten to two. Uh, I'd had my dinner at home, then I met Police Sergeant Griffiths in the saloon bar. Uh, We got a drink, then uh, I heard a woman shout in the next bar. He's cut his throat. Did you identify the woman? It was Grace Blackmore, the barmaid. I went into the private bar and saw Mida bleeding all over the place. He said, ''Let me die. I've done my old woman in.'' I see. I gave him first aid and then I left him with Sergeant Griffiths, uh, went to investigate. Mm -hmm. He'd give me this address in Boundaries Road. I knocked, no answer. So I looked through the window and saw a woman lying on the floor on her back. The glass panel of the front door was broken, so I put my hand through and opened the door but the door of the front room on the ground floor was locked. So the killer had locked the door behind her? Yeah. I forced the door open and found the deceased lying up against it, fully dressed except for her hat. She was blue in the face and there was a bruise on her cheekbone. I applied artificial respiration for ten minutes uh, without any success. Uh, then I went for an ambulance. You did your best, I'm sure. Um... We got her to St James's Hospital and a Dr McCormack pronounced her dead. Then I went back to the Ballam Hotel and me and Sergeant Griffiths took me to the hospital.
13: Mm-hmm.
7: In the ambulance, he was in a very excited condition. He shouted, I hope she's dead. I shan't hang for it. I'm afraid at the hospital he became very violent for a time. But, uh. Obviously nothing that Sergeant Griffiths and myself aren't trained to manage. I expect he was in a state of shock. He was drunk. The two states may seem similar. You're sure of this? He was drunk. Hmm. So then what did you do? I went back to Boundaries Road and examined the rooms. The furniture and rugs and so on were disarranged in such a way as to suggest a struggle had taken place. Okay. I went through some folding doors into the adjoining bedroom and found a lady's handbag containing papers, uh, letters mostly, uh, from uh, gentlemen. Of an amorous nature? <laughs> oh, I should say so. Uh,
3: yes, uh, if you just give me a moment. He's got
7: nothing to worry about, really, has he? What do you mean? Well, a blind man like that, in the Devons? No. Uh, I heard there was this thing, this understanding to go easy on a man like that. Uh, that's why they won't hang him. They couldn't do that. They've got this unspoken understanding. It's never been made official, but blokes like that, well, the, the judges are given special instructions to go easy. Well, the, this is what I've heard. I mean, they'd have to, really, wouldn't they? A bloke like that? Ain't that right, Mr. Birkin?
3: We'll do our best, Sergeant. Yes, but your eloquence, sir, would sway any jury. Unfortunately, the old Bailey is a cause of law, not a court of justice. A defence cannot be built out of pity alone.
4: What do you want? Mr
7: James Randall. Who wants to know? This is Mr Norman Burkett, barrister at law, and I'm Edgar Bowker, his clerk. Come to talk to you about Arthur Meader. Oh.
3: Him. You'd better come in. Thank you. Thank you.
4: How is he? Not in the best of spirits. Johnny Walker's hard to come by inside. He's very worried about his little girl. Yeah, he would be. Oh, yeah, sorry about the
3: mess. Mm. How long have you known, Mr Meader?
4: Oh, just since they moved in the road last uh, September. Mm. Well, of course, she moved out not long after, so he had to look after the nipper on his own, didn't he? Which, to give him fair credit, he did all right. You know, not like a lot of these kids round here with their arses out. That little girl was was clean and tidy. Mm. Oh, to be honest, the man who could see and everything couldn't have done a better job. And Mr Meader was a friend of yours? Uh, I'd say so. He has a a mean streak, though.
3: Did you and he ever discuss Mrs Meader's
4: behaviour? Well, some days it was all he could talk about. About her not coming home nights. He said to me once, he said, I'll spoil her face so nobody else will fancy her and then she'll be glad to stay at home with a blind man. He yeah, had had a few mind. Did they argue a lot? Ah oh, non stop. Yeah, you asked Margaret upstairs from him. She was always on a cadge, see? Mabel, Arthur's missus, she was always on the cadge. But Mr Meader wasn't a wealthy man. Aye, hey, he didn't do so bad. Saint Dunstan's used to send him a few quid now and again. And whenever he was down a pub I never saw him put his hand in his pocket. You had to stand him a drink, didn't you? Or people'd think he was a tight ass. Oh, blind old soldier. See, I saw him the day before all this happened, and he was in a right state. Hard to tell whether he was half cut or barking stupid. He said, she ain't half done it on me now. He said she was going to get the little girl off of him. Take her away for good. And then he said she wanted a pound out of him because she was hard up. And he said, well, I ain't got a pound, have I? And he said, come back tomorrow and I'll give you a pound, but... Only if you come back and stay here. But then she went. And he was pretty sure she'd gone to meet her fancy man. Do you think she was being unfaithful to him? Well, everybody knew that, didn't they? The next day I saw him again and he said she'd been round again. He'd come in my shop. I've got a a bike shop. So I understand. Yeah, I sell bikes. You want a bike? You come round, I'll do you five bob off any model. That's very generous. (coughs) Well, anyway... He comes in the shop and he says, what well, he likes to do a bit of a moody, and he says, goodbye, you won't see me again. I'm going to make a job of it. Keep me in remembrance. Hmm. That, that's what he said. His exact words. And
3: you thought from this that he was planning to kill himself? Well, to be honest, I just thought he was
4: pissed again.
12: There he is, can't you see? Waving his handkerchief As merry as a robin
3: It was very moving. Baines was telling me they had to bring in a hundred specials to hold back the crowds. Six huge cars filled with flowers. And in the third car they had a wreath shaped like a birdcage. And the cage door was open, you see, symbolic. Because the old cock linnet had flown. Exquisite. Gertie Gatana was there. Was she? Mm. I saw Hetty King and the Egbert brothers. Both of them? Yes, Seth and Albert. You're a lucky man. Who's first? Uh,
7: <clears throat> the police sergeant, then Randall, then Mabel's mother, and the neighbour Margaret Halls, and Doctor McCormack,
3: oh, a chap who did the post mortem. Did you find anything we could use? Well, Humphreys can call witness after witness, who can describe Arthur's every action. He expressed his intention. Afterwards, he freely confessed to the crime. Mm. I haven't had a chance, probably, to examine the post-mortem report yet, but it looks like textbook death by strangulation. Will be calling, Arthur? Our only hope. Show them the blind hero and pray they're easily swayed. I once saw a bank to rights embezzler acquitted because he had honest eyebrows. <clears throat> it can be done. What time is it?
7: Still got a good ten minutes. Mm. You know, when she uh, collapsed on stage... Everybody thought her staggering about was part of the act.
3: <laughs> she was singing, uh, I'm one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. A feeling I recognise wholeheartedly.
12: Uh, that's right. Mrs Margaret Alls and I'm the wife of James Alls and we live upstairs from Arthur Meader and Mabel Meader when she was there and little Rainy.
11: And how were relations between Mr and Mrs Meader when they first took occupancy?
12: Oh, they used to quarrel from the first. And then it was as if they were quarrelling all the time. I remember one time Mrs Meader coming home very late last Christmas Eve and Arthur wouldn't let her in, so she smashed a glass panel on the door. And then, a few weeks after that, Mrs Meader left the house. Hmm. This was over a young fella.
11: So Mrs Meader was having a relationship with another man?
12: (laughs) Arthur often said his wife used to go about with men and... This did upset him a great deal. Then, since January, uh, Mrs Meader hasn't slept in the flat, except maybe uh, twice or or three times. But she used to come in the day sometimes.
11: Did she visit the house in July?
12: Uh, I heard her at the house on Tuesday the 11th of July speaking to Arthur. Uh, They were quiet. Then I heard her again at about noon on the Wednesday 12th of July, the day she... um, died... They were shouting and quarrelling. The noise stopped at at, at ten to one and it was very quiet. I went out at ten past two and and saw Arthur standing at the gate. He said, uh, did you hear the missus? And I said yes. And he said, uh, she's gone.
3: Are you not taking luncheon, sir? No, and neither are you. There are two books I need you to get. They won't have them here. Try the library at Bart's Hospital or the medical bookshop on the Strand. Also, a copy of the Lancet for 1911. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've uh, I've got the reference here. Uh, October 1911. But you've got something? Tiny footnote in the autopsy report. Might be nothing. Might be the salvation of Arthur Mida. You want me to copy out the whole thing? If I am up against a medical man, I will need the exact terminology. I must not be seen to stumble. Now, the specimen from the post-mortem. How big is it? See, I'm not too keen on walking around London with bits of offal in my hand. It's no bigger than your thumb. Or perhaps your hand. I've no idea. Take a capacious bag. Now, there's one more thing. Three years ago, in Edmonton, a chap died at a Mary Lloyd concert. Yes, and his name was that... Joseph Edwards, and he just got back from five years in Malaya, where he had pictures of Miss Lloyd all over the walls of his crib. Ah, you know all about it. Get me the post-mortem report. On Joseph Edwards? Yes. I want to know exactly
7: how he died.
11: Mr Meader, can I ask how you lost your sight?
7: It was while I was
10: serving in the army.
11: And you can see nothing?
10: Nothing, except shadows, and that's just with me right eye. I have pains in my head too, caused by the
11: injuries I got in the war. You have our sympathy, of course. Now, can I ask you about the events of this July that have brought you to the court today?
10: On the 11th, my wife came to see me. I got down on my knees to her, and I I begged her to come home to me.
11: And what was her reaction?
10: She didn't say no. She seemed softer than she had been with me for a while. She said she would call round the next day. And did she? When she came round, she was different. She said she was going abroad and that she wanted to take our little girl with her. She said she had something the matter with her and that she wanted a fresh start. I went to the door and I stood with my back to it to stop her from leaving. She came at me and grabbed me by my coat trying to get past me and then she caught hold of me by the back of my neck and she was shouting at me and pulling me and then the pains, the ones I get in my head, started. They hurt me most terribly. I tried, I tried, I I tried my utmost to push her away and we both sort of fell to the floor. We rolled over and she was still pulling at me and then all of a sudden, she went limp.
11: And I... I I thought she'd fainted. You're saying that you didn't know you had killed her? Uh, I... I thought... uh, I thought she was unconscious.
10: I went out of the room and then... I came back in again thinking she'd come round. I did that a few times, but... Then I realised she was dead.
11: What was the reason you didn't go straight to the police when you realised what you'd done?
10: I was frightened. I had the pains in the head, like I told you about. I didn't know what to do, I just
11: got out. And where, in fact, did you go, Mr Meader? I went to the Ballam Hotel you just murdered your wife and you went to a public house.
10: My brain was boiling. I didn't know what to do. I I felt depressed and
11: worried. And what did you then decide would be the correct course of action when you'd had a drink at the Ballam Hotel?
10: I decided to end it all. I could see no way of going on.
11: And did you consider your daughter the daughter that you claim to care so much about, did you consider what would happen to her with both parents dead?
10: I knew St Dunstan's would look after her, and they have. I got a letter today from the sisters at the orphanage. They say she's a very good girl.
11: But a child needs her parents, and you, at a stroke, deprived her of mother and father. I'd had enough. So, you inflicted a wound to your throat with a safety razor blade. The injury wasn't a serious one, though, was it, Mr Meader? I meant to do it. That will be all, Mr Meader. Oh. 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 Oh.
3: Oh. Edgar! Edgar! Sorry, I, I couldn't find a cap. Did you get it? Oh, yes. It's huge. Don't take it out here. People are trying to eat. Did you get the reports? Seems sound enough. Good. Has it occurred to you that if Arthur Meader hangs, in effect he becomes yet another casualty of war? Sure as if he'd been shot in a shell? One dies of war like any old disease. This bandage feels like pennies on my eyes. Sorry? Wilfred Owen. Oh! yeah, I saw him. Wilfred Owen? Yeah. Singing in blackface at the Shizik Empire. Versatile man.
13: Yes, I was the doctor on duty at St James Hospital, Balham, when Mabel Meader was brought in on the afternoon of the 12th of July.
3: Would you describe the condition of Mrs Meader when you first examined her? She was already dead. The probability is that she was dead an hour previous to that. Did you make a post-mortem examination?
13: On the 13th of July. Perhaps you could share with the court the relevant findings. She was a well-built woman, well-nourished... Her face was slightly swollen and her pupils were somewhat dilated. There was a trivial bruise on her forehead and a second bruise just below the angle of the jawline on the left side.
3: Could these two bruises have
13: been the result of a savage fight? No. But when I continued with the post-mortem, I found that a quantity of dark blood had flowed from the skull.
3: This, to me, suggested pressure on the jugular vein. Strangulation? Strangulation? Yes. And did any other notable abnormalities show up during the examination? The uterus showed evidence of a chronic inflammation. The dead
13: woman was suffering from gonorrhea. (laughs) No other
3: abnormalities? None of any significance. Yet uh, this, I believe, was taken from the body. New evidence signed and verified, my lord. If the clerk could pass this to Dr McCormack. I wonder if you'd be so good as to identify the item, doctor. It's a thymus gland. Correct. Taken, as the label verifies, from the body of Mabel Meader. I think I pointed out in my report that I found it was enlarged. Mabel Meader's thymus gland weighs one and three-eighths ounces... What could one expect a normal thymus gland to weigh in a woman of 28? Less than half of that, I would say. It's a
13: gland that is at its largest during puberty. After that, it atrophies. Could you tell us the function of the gland? The thymus gland. From the Greek, thumus, I believe, meaning desire or spirit. It furnishes an internal secretion, concerned with some phases of the body's metabolism,
3: Especially that of the sexual glands. So, what might the effects of an enlarged thymus have been on Mrs Meader? I don't think it's possible to say. Would you care to comment on the well-researched possibility that it could have heightened her sexual appetites? And that the promiscuous behaviour that so upset and enraged her husband may, in fact... ...have had a medical cause. I don't think that it is possible to deduce that... ...from the scanty research that exists into this matter. Quite right, quite right. But research has shown that there have been instances... ...when people with enlarged thymus glands... ...have died from excitement alone. That is possible. Indeed it is possible. I have details of several cases here. The condition, I am told, is called status lymphaticus a jockey in Ireland, died during a race and was found to have had an unusually enlarged thymus. More notably, an audience member at one of Miss Mary Lloyd's concerts in Edmonton a few years ago died ostensibly of excitement. The post-mortem revealed that he too was suffering from an enlarged thymus. Would you care to comment on the possibility that Mabel Meader died of excitement? during a moment of high drama when she attempted to leave her husband. You said yourself that her injuries were slight. That would be a fair assumption, but there were signs of violence. Thank you, Dr McCormack. You've been most helpful. There you are, you see? I told you Mr Birkett would see you right. I can't take all this in. Arthur, you are free. You can go home now. Well done, Arthur. It's Captain Fraser from St Dunstan's. Captain Fraser. I got you the right man, then. Mr Burkett could convince me a box of matches was a coach and four. <laughs> All the best. Uh, thank you. Captain Fraser. It's very good to meet you again. Ah, congratulations, sir. Thank you. And your wife, Mr Burkett. Has the happy event occurred? No, no. Uh, any moment now. If you'll excuse me, I-, I must hurry home. I'm expecting news. Of course.
10: Arthur, uh, Should Could I, we... I just have a quiet word with Mr Burkett? Of course. Mr. Birkett, what you said in there about Mabel and her going around with other men, was it really because of the thing that was wrong with her? It's possible, Mr. Meader, but it is only a theory. So it might not have been because she didn't love me anymore. Arthur. What?
3: They are good people at St. Dunstan's. You must allow them to help you. And if there is anything that my wife and I can do... I was thinking particularly about your daughter. Please don't hesitate to ask.
10: One thing. That thing in the bottle. The thymus gland. Yes.
3: Have you got it? I promised personally to return it.
10: Could I have it? Could I keep it? Keep it? Then at least I'll always have a part of her with me. You have Renee. No. They'll never let me have her back now. There. I'll treasure it.
3: Indeed.
0: In Burkitt and the Blind Soldier by Caroline and David Stafford, Norman Burkitt was played by Neil Dudgeon, Arthur by Carl Prekop, Edgar, Alan Raglan, and Billy by Bonnie Engstrom. Captain Fraser was Adam Billington, Randall, Ricky Lawton, Margaret, Alex Rivers, Sergeant Waller, Gerard McDermott, Humphreys, James Layley, Lady Pearson, Adjoa Ando, and McCormack was Paul Moriarty. The Boy I Love was sung by Victoria Inez Hardy and the director was Mark Beebe.